Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. One of the best ways you can do this is by reading my newest book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy your books. Check out my new book, Spiritual Intelligence, and let me know what you think about it. I hope you enjoy this message today. Um, let's pray. Let's <laughs> come to that. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing today. <laughs> Lord, help these people and the people who are watching us. Uh, Lord, we, just, we do. We pray for your grace. Pray for your anointing today. Pray for favor on this word. Pray that you would guard and guide our thoughts and our words, what we hear and how we hear it. Amen. I want to talk about, I've been on this, uh, thinking about this theme for a long time, really, but the last three months, I really, this is kind of what I'm going to sleep with at night and waking up with during the day. I've been speaking on, last time I spoke, I think it was, I don't know, three weeks or a month ago, I spoke on the reformers are coming, and I want to talk about that, the coming reformers, or maybe the reformation that we're in the midst of. And I wanted to, you know, I think... Uh, prophecy, uh, our whole movement is based in an apostolic prophetic movement, and prophecy has been such a very important part of our, of our lives for, you know, many, many years with us over 43 years together. Uh, it's just been such an important part of the guiding light of, our, of where we're going and the vision we have, and uh, not that it's always been perfect, as we know per- <laughs> recently. Um, but I, I, I'm thinking about how important a prophetic setting is. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a right word in a right season. And I've been thinking about how oftentimes it's not that a word or an action is wrong. Sometimes it's a perversion. When I mean perversion right now, I mean the wrong version. Sometimes it's the right word, but it's just in the wrong season. And or it's a right word applied in the right season, but by the wrong people. And I feel like God has given us a mandate, and he's made us a certain, he's made, the body of Christ has different functions in, in obviously in the body, but also in the way we interact with the world. And I wanted to show you some contrasting verses. I actually read these about three weeks ago, but uh, in a, for a different context, if you'll turn to Joel, uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, I want to show you something about prophetic context, and then I want to talk to you about uh, just a little bit about where, what I see, at least for me, and I'm aware that I may have a conviction for my own life that may be different from yours, and it doesn't make yours wrong and mine right, it's just you're on, you're, I'm the one speaking, so... You're on a journey with me until we have a private conversation with you, maybe. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it'll come about in the last days. Can you say the last days? That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and the nations will stream to it. And many people will come, and they'll say, Let us come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us concerning his ways, and we'll walk in his path. For, the, for instruction will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And they will judge between nations and render decisions between... No, I'm sorry, let me start over. And he will judge between nations 
and render decisions between many people. They will hammer, can you say this with me? They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hook. I'll read the rest. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. I'd like to point out that Isaiah opens with this phrase, in the last days. So I think that we have to agree that this is a last days, this is a passage of prophecy concerning the last days. Agreed? Okay, simple agreement there. Thanks, Ben. Let's, let's turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Now, I'm about to read a passage that is quoted from Peter, uh, by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and you'll, you'll see it right away. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days. Peter adds, in the last days. I'm going to read you the verse in Joel, and then I'm going to read you the context in which that verse is written. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about in, that, in this day that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on your male and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Okay, so what I'm pointing out is that Joel is actually talking about a last day's prophecy. Isaiah is talking about a last day's prophecy. Can you see that so far? Um, the book of Joel is actually one long prophecy, so we have it broken down into chapters for obvious reasons, but this isn't, um, uh, sometimes in Isaiah, you'll read a chapter, and then and it'll be a prophecy, and then there'll be another chapter will be a completely different prophecy. The book of Joel is one prophecy from the beginning to the end, as if Joel was, obviously he couldn't, but if, as if he was recording it, and someone wrote out the prophecy. It didn't have chapter breaks He wasn't thinking in pieces when he wrote it. Are you with me? So let's go to chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers soldiers draw near and let them come up. Okay, I want you to say this with me. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. I'll read the rest. Let the weak say, I'm mighty man. Hasten and come, all the surrounding nations, they all gather there, yourselves. Bring down, O Lord, the mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there, is, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in a sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for, the, for their wickedness is great. Listen to the last, uh, the last phrase here. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the Lord... For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Um, I had you repeat a phrase. Did you notice? Did you notice that you repeated the opposite phrase that Isaiah said? You're going to take your swords and you're going to beat them into plowshares, farm equipment. You're going to take your spears and you're going to beat them into pruning hooks. You're going to take your weapons of warfare and you're going to make them weapons of peace or vehicles, vessels of peace. Did you notice that Joel also said in the last days, And he said, you're going to take your plowshares and you're going to beat them into swords. You're going to take your pruning hooks and you're going to beat them into spears. Did you notice it's both in the last days? Did you notice that Isaiah ends with that God's going to decide between the nations and they'll never train for war again. And Joel says, raise up an army. They're in the valley of decision. There's so many wicked people. Did you notice that it both says the last days? 
do you think, well, Joel got it wrong? <laughs> or maybe you're like, it was Isaiah. <laughs> he got a lot of prophecies, probably got one wrong. Of course not. Let me just say this for if you were watching. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I'm pointing out that they both saw the last days and they both saw polar opposite situations in which even the illustrations they used were opposite. And I'm saying they were both right. Some people would, <laughs> I mean, it, it, the, you know, the question becomes like, was this happening at the same time? Was there people in one, in one side of the planet, you know, building swords? Well, another were building, you know, taking swords and making them farm equipment? Or was it two different seasons? Or was there an alternative ending to the movie depending on the faith you had? <laughs> Like maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe it's not the clock and calendar that determines the outcome of the last days. Maybe it's what you have faith for. I don't know the answer to that question. That's a good question for Dan. I think he should preach on that next time. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. I'm pointing out that it isn't just having the prophetic word that matters. It's actually having the setting for the people in which that word is supposed to manifest. And just because somebody has, just because somebody else has it, is carrying a different prophetic word, doesn't mean they're wrong. Just because some folks are over here taking their pruning hooks and beating them into swords, and you're over here like, why don't we just swap instruments? <laughs> here, you can have our pruning hooks, we'll take your swords. I'm pointing out that this is too, if you're in the sword camp, how many understand, you might be like making judgments about the people who are in the pruning hook camp. But Isaiah made a point that these two things are happening even though they don't feel congruent with one another. Turn to Romans chapter 13. It's interesting, uh, when I, I just preached at Twinview, and um, Francisco led a prayer or closed prayer, closed in prayer, I think. Or maybe it was in the offering. I don't remember which. But he said, I feel like the Lord is talking to us about sequence. And he said, I think the Lord's talking to us about sequence. I don't know. He said, it's just this whole thing about sequence. And then I didn't even know what that had to do with this prayer, but I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not just about prophetic words, but what's the sequence? You can have the, a perversion is the wrong version. <laughs> so Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever res resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Everybody say condemnation upon themselves. I want to stop for just a minute. This is Romans 13. In Romans 8, Paul says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 13, he says, if you don't keep the law, you should be condemned. Okay, keep going. Just cheering you up. Verse 3, rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, 
and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. Everybody say minister of God. It's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. If you do evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but, because, uh, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due. Tax to whom taxes due. Listen to this. Custom whom customs dear due. Fear to whom fears due. Honor to whom honors due. Now, I don't know if you just got what he just said. First John says, there's no fear in love, and perfect love casts out fear. In, in Romans, Paul says, in the 13th chapter we just read, he said, if you want to do evil, be afraid. I'd like to point out, <laughs> I'd like to point out that God wants you to be motivated by love. But if you won't control yourself, if you won't manage your inner world from, if you won't manage your outer world by managing your inner world from love, God will manage you from fear. God says to people, if you want to do evil to your neighbor and you refuse to let love motivate your actions to your neighbors, I have other people who are ministers. I've put a sword in their hand and they're going to scare you into doing the right thing so you don't hurt your neighbor. You're going to act out of fear because you refuse to act out of love. And God has ministers of God has his ministers who he's given the sword of wrath to that are commissioned by God to use wrath to scare people into good behavior until they're ready to love people into right behavior. God molds culture from the inside out and from the outside in. And he calls civil leaders ministers of God. Good word, Chris. It's no problem. Too late. You got to get in practice just like I do. Okay, now turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start at verse 7. To each one of us, grace, everybody say grace, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're going to go down to verse 11 because of the way we're using these verses. And he gave some as apostles some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, to equip the saints, everybody say equip the saints, to do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to the measure of the statue that belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, until we all look like Jesus. Look at verse um, 14. As a result... Okay, what's the ROI on this? <laughs> Business people are like, what's the ROI? They're always asking, like, what's the ROI? What, like, what is the fruit of this equipping the saints? Let's read it. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, in all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ, whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper work 
of each individual member causes the growth of the body for the building of itself uh, in love. Uh, Let me just summarize what Paul said as a result. He said the saints are to grow up and mature. The fivefold ministry grows people from the inside out. So what is the what is the outcome of the fivefold ministry? That you would grow up and mature, that I would grow up and mature. That they are that they have great discernment and they are street smart. Did you notice he says this? You will no longer you'll you'll avoid false doctrine, fraudulent tricksters, and deceitful schemes you'll not be a part of. In other words, the fivefold ministry doesn't just equip you so you can hang out with other believers. It actually equips you so you have discernment to know about tricksters, about deceitful schemers, that, that you understand conspiracy theories that are not from God. God the, in other words, the fivefold ministry is equipping you with the gifts of the Spirit and with character and the nature of the mind of God so that you are fully prepared for every good work in Christ Jesus and you don't just hang out with other believers, you actually treat street smart. You're actually prepared not just for the world, but for the, how many know? I'm not just for the kingdom, but for the world. You're not just the Lamb of God, you also have the Lion of the tribe of Judah in you. This is part, this is a part of what the fivefold ministry, the church brings inside out. And God's civil leaders work outside in. Are you with me? We change the world from the inside out. Laws are not our first or only way that we mold culture we change hearts and then laws change this is our duty i'm saying civil leaders change laws because they are they are tasked with with controlling people who would want to harm others but we are tasked with changing the hearts the minds and of culture so that people change not because they're scared to but because they love to they love their babies not because the law says you have to but because jesus said look what you're carrying it's a gift from god they treat each other whether black white brown or yellow they treat each other like with love because god said every tribe every nation Social justice happens from the inside out because people actually do love one another. Not because they're forced to treat each other a certain way because I'm going to be punished if I don't. How many of you know that is a stopgap for people who are waiting to be transformed from the inside out? You have to have ways to protect people until they become transformed. We were in the... Oh, let me read one more passage. You know, the Pharisees get a pretty bad rap, and they should in the days of Christ. But actually, they were 
pretty good people in the days of the apostles. Many of them. Many of them, I say. Let me, let me back up and say many of them. Because they begin to convert. And you understand, there was no printing presses. So, and most people were literate. So even if you had a Bible, it would be kind of hard to read. And there was only the Old Testament, right? So when the early church, when people began to get saved... I don't want to say the only, but most of the people who actually knew the Bible were the Pharisees and scribes. Because in order to be a Pharisee, you actually had to memorize the first five books of the Torah. And so in the early days of the church, you'll notice that there's the Acts 15 council where the Pharisees are getting saved. They're trying to figure out how to apply these scriptures about circumcision, about the Levitical laws, like we look at 2,000 years later, we go, well, that seems pretty obvious, but how many know when you're in the midst of it, it's quite different. Like, here's some Gentiles getting saved. Do, we, do they have to keep these rules and so on and so forth? But anyway, the point is, is that the Pharisees turned into, many of the Pharisees followed Christ and became the early teachers. I'd, I'd suggest that Paul, the apostle, who was a Pharisee, the reason why he writes 13 books of the Bible is because he actually knows the Bible. <laughs> Let's just think about that for a minute. <laughs> Are you saying Peter didn't? No, no, there's no argument. We love everybody. <laughs> I don't know, the culture is like everyone wants to argue about everything right now. So, so Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. This is when they're, they're definitely not doing a great job. And he makes this point, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup, cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may also become clean. And my point I'm, I'm making here is that he's saying to the Pharisees, you're obsessed with looking good without being good. And he said, and, and he makes a point, right? I like the last point he makes. He says, clean the, outside, clean the inside of the cup so that the outside could be clean. And the point he's making, you Pharisees are commissioned, follow me, you, you spiritual leaders are commissioned to help people from the inside out, but you insist on only making the outside clean without changing the inside. It's the same point I'm trying to make in a little different way. There are civil leaders who are commissioned to control people, if I can say, and I'm talking about people who want to do wicked, control people from the outside in. But we are commissioned, people of God, Our best card is inside out. We are commissioned to transform lives, save the lost, heal the sick, cast out demons, and change culture, yes, but from the inside out. This is our best card. This is who we are. We were in um, the tent, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, on a Sunday night, if I remember and man, the Holy Spirit was just moving powerfully. By the way, the Holy Spirit's moving so powerfully in the tent. It, it, it's, it's inconvenient, but if you can get there, you should be there. And I haven't been there every night, but it's, the times I've been there, it's just been powerful. And I, I was laying, just laying on the concrete. And, and which is one of those times. <laughs> Sometimes you have to lose your dignity to gain, to, or maybe, what does it say? Lose your dignity to gain, to get rid of your demons or something. Then I started thinking, uh, I didn't have any demons, so it didn't quite work. But I was laying on the floor, and, and the worship was happening, and it was just a prophetic, it's hard to describe, but it's easy to experience. You've been there before. 
And just all this stuff is swirling in my mind. And this phrase is going through my mind. I didn't initiate the phrase. It was going through my mind, though. It just was, it was echoing in my mind like a song that you can't get out of your head. And it was, we need to go back to the old gem. We need to go back to the old gem. And it was that, it was that kind of thing where you're like, you know it's God because you didn't, weren't thinking about Jim or... And it reminded me that when I heard, go back to the old gym, I have to be honest with you, it reminded me of the Rocky movie. And I was laying there, and I, and I actually turned to, I think, uh, I think Leslie was leading the meeting, and I said, I have something. She goes, just go for it. And I just went up there, and I said, I feel like we're to go back to the old gym. I feel like we're called to go back to our roots. And we just prayed about it, and it was, I thought it was powerful. I was blessed. <laughs> by my own word it doesn't always happen <laughs> anyway Andy Mason I don't remember if he was there or I was sharing with him on text and uh, oh I was sharing with him uh, we were in a meeting and the next day he sent me this video from, the, from Rocky 3 now I'm going to play it and you that are watching, you're going to have a little three minutes to go get coffee because we're, we're not allowed to stream the video even though it's on YouTube. Figure that out, civil leaders. Work this out. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Someone might... Anyway, don't, don't say it. Just keep going. You're streaming right now. Remember, everybody's watching you. The audience is bigger than you think. Okay, sorry. Processing out loud. I want to show you this clip, and it's a, a clip of Rocky. This is Rocky Three. so if you've watched any of the Rocky movies, Rocky One, you know, he kind of comes out, out of, the, of the hood, and he's really poor, beaten down. He meets Adrian, his wife, and, you know, and the whole thing is about him. It's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, rags, rags to riches. And then uh, I forget what the second movie's about, but the third movie is about him being wealthy. And so he's wealthy, he's beat every opponent, and he's, <laughs> someone said, come on, <laughs> I'm trying. And, and he's, you know, he's, got, he's living the American dream. And his wife, Adrian's like, why risk it? Like, let's, why not just retire? Like, you're done. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm done. And he's going to retire. And, you know, he's got this big mansion. He's got a Ferrari, which I would have. <laughs> in heaven. Doing okay in heaven. I like cars. And, and so she's telling him, you know, you should retire. So he's all set up to retire. And then there's this guy named Clubber Lane, who is Mr. T. And he is challenging Rocky. And, and, and actually, there's, there's these little 20-second, 30-second shots of him preparing. And he's beating all these opponents, and he's doing what Rocky used to do. He's in an old gym. He's running up hills with weight on him. He's, he's practicing doing what Rocky used to do. And he's beating every opponent. And he begins to challenge Rocky for the title. And tell Rocky, don't go out of retirement. Come and fight me. And, you know, Adrian's like, no, we don't need this. We don't need this. And so Rocky finally says, I got to fight this guy. And I want to take you to the scene. And the rest of you, just, uh, it's a commercial. You can't fight this guy because he'll kill you to death. <laughs> I love that phrase. He'll kill you to death. 
And he says, and Rocky says, you don't think I can beat him? He said, no. He said, the worst thing, he said, you used to be supernatural. But the worst thing happened to you that happens to many fighters, Rocky. You become civilized. I didn't have that planned in my message. I've been working on it all week. This morning I was just praying before coming here. And I remember that video that Andy sent to me. And this word, civilized, came to me. You became civilized. And I started thinking about that, that statement, at least for me, is prophetic, at least to me. It's like, you started out supernatural, but you became civilized. Remember, there are people who are supposed to be civil leaders and change things from the outside in. But you used to be supernatural, but you become civilized. And I'm saying, like, I think that we should be involved in civil government. The question is how, who, and how do we get involved? And I'm saying, I think that we should be leaven needed into culture, and we don't want to lose our supernatural effect so that we can have a political place. I think we can't lose love. This is our best card. We change people from the inside out. We, for instance, I feel I am very passionate about moral issues. You know that. I've started Moral Revolution. I'm very passionate about the, the, the well-being of babies in the womb. I, 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 I don't want to start a whole you know, war today. But, uh, but we've had four presidents that were all pro-life. We had President Reagan who wrote a book about abortion that was co-authored by the Surgeon General. We had three Bush presidents, two Bush presidents that were both pro-life. We had a Trump president who was pro-life. We have a pro-life court, and we still have abortion. And I'm saying, I want good laws, but I want mothers to love their babies. I want fathers to come home so they can have babies in a home. I want the church to help mothers who don't have fathers. I want to see us adopt. I want to see us create places for the safety for babies. This is our best card. This is what we're good at. I believe in civil leadership. Yes, God said those guys are ministers. And if you're supposed to be one, we're with you. And hopefully we can vote for you. And you should vote. But that's not our best card. That's not our DNA. Even... Acts 17 is just, you know, this verse 6 has been resonating with us for years. It's a commentary by the world on the church coming to this particular city. It says, and those who turn the world upside down, oh no, they're here. (laughs) I don't want to scare the hell out of people. I want to love it out of them. interesting uh this week i have been uh, focusing on this phrase uh and jesus was born at the right time i think it says and the son of god came at the right time uh, uh, the word time is what i'm focusing on and i was like 
And I don't know why, but just out of the blue, I started thinking, like, Jesus was born right at the right time. And I started thinking, well, God didn't just plan Jesus to be born. He actually had a time for him to be born. Kind of like the Joel-Isaiah contrast. It's like, there's a time for everything. There's a season for peace. There's a season for war. There's a season for love. There's a season for Ecclesiastes, right? And Jesus was born at the right time. And then I realized, like, he wasn't just born at the right time. He's actually born at the right place. It's actually, there's actually... Four different places Jesus had to be from. He literally moved around to fulfill prophetic words. I could show you that someday. Then I said to myself, if I'm God, which I'm not, just be clear, (laughs) happened to be his friend, why would I have Jesus born in a time when the Jews are ruled by the Romans? Like, why wouldn't I have Jesus born 400 years earlier when the Jews are thriving, I think. Dan's not in here, so I feel like a little bit more liberty. (laughs) I look over at Dan, he's like, 500 years, 600 years, 700 years. (laughs) Thousand? I mean, why didn't Jesus, why wasn't the savior of the world, you get the idea, born when Israel was doing well? Why was he born at the right time? And why was the right time when the Jews were being ruled by the Romans? Like, how is that the right time? And I started thinking about, is it possible that it was the right time because God was teaching believers how to interact with godless governments? That literally, part of the lesson was obviously the resurrection, all that. Please, that's the main message. That's the main message. That's our main message. But I'm talking a little bit differently today. How do we connect with culture? Was Jesus actually teaching us how to connect with culture? Now, you probably know this, but in case you don't, the Jews' eschatology in the days of Jesus, eschatology, uh, how they saw the last days. They, they knew there would be a Messiah, Right? And Isaiah prophesied about Messiah. He actually ta- he, many of the prophets prophesied about Messiah. The ones I'm remembering right now are Isaiah. He talks about that he will die for the good of the people. He, you know, by his stripes will be healed. But, but Isaiah also prophesied about a, about a powerful Messiah that would actually rule, eventually rule the world. And remember, they didn't have the book of Revelation. They, they, they didn't have any of the New Testament. So in fairness to the the theologians of that day, they didn't understand that there would be a first coming in which the Messiah would die, and thousands of years later, there would be a second coming when he would come as the Messiah. They didn't, they didn't know that. So when Jesus, when they finally figure out that Jesus is the Messiah, not every one of them did, but the ones that did, they're like, the Messiah, oh my gosh, he's born right now, and we are going to whip these Romans. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to, this is a perfect time. Do you know he's the Messiah? Yes, he's healing the sick and raising the dead. And he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to sit on the throne of his father David. Oh my gosh. And, and I think it was Isaiah who prophesied that he will be sitting on a donkey and he will ride in in Jerusalem. So Jesus tells the disciples, go get me a donkey. Uh, that one that's tied up down the street. If someone says, why are you stealing our donkey? Say, the Lord has need of it. Okay. He sits on a donkey, right? This is, I'm sorry, this is in the Bible. I'll find it for you, but it's there somewhere. And listen, he sits on a donkey, Matthew, uh, Mark 11, 
And he's, it says, and he brought the colt, I guess it was a colt, I don't know if that's a donkey, to Jesus. And they put, they put coats on it, and, they, and he sat on it. And they spread their coats in the road, and their leafy branches, which they cut. They went and, and they followed him, and listen to what they said. Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, the, is his coming kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They weren't worshiping him just because they were like, oh, I got this revelation, he's a Messiah. They were worshiping him because they thought that he was going to go from the cult to the throne and we're going to beat these Romans. It was, very, it was very disheartening for his disciples to figure out that setting up the kingdom, hey, can John sit on one side? James sit on another? Jesus is like, yeah, guys, your eschatology is a little wrong. And they thought, you're going to be the king. Here we are, servants of David, thrones. And then Jesus begins to teach them. Listen to some of the things he taught them. Matthew 5, 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp, put it under a basket. Puts it on a lampstand, gives light to the whole house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And by the way, so he says, do good works. Here's here's how you're going to beat the Romans. Okay, do good works. And they're going to glorify your Father who's in heaven. Good point, Jesus. <laughs> now, in John 15, he, he, he gives them a little, I call it truth and tension. He said, hey, uh, let me tell you about the world I just told you you're going to do good works to. He said, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. And they actually hate you because you love me and they're not of me. So how many know, he always kept in tension like, not everyone's going to find me even though you're going to do good stuff. Listen, look at this one. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 17. Are you guys all right? Verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? These are the Pharisees talking to Jesus. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Jesus perceived the malice and said to them, you're te- why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a Damaris. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And they said, Caesar's. And, they, and he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. These are Pharisees. These are the ones that have the eschatology. You're coming as a Messiah? What do we do about this? Jesus said, give Caesar his stuff and give God his stuff. They're like, throw him over, overthrow him. Just pay the tax. Oh, here's one. You'll really like this one. Matthew 5, 41. Whoever forces, this is the middle of uh, a whole exhortation that's two chapters long. Whoever forces you to go to mile, go with him too. Now, I'm going to read you the rest of it, but let me give you a little context. Roman soldiers could compel any Jew to carry his backpack for one mile. 
Roman roads had mile markers similar to the mile markers that we have on interstate highways, so it was easy to know where the mile markers started and ended. If someone refused to do it, he was flogged. So let me read it to you. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, you look at that and you're like, okay, it's a metaphor. It wasn't a metaphor to the people he's speaking about. He's saying, they're saying, you're the Messiah. You're going to set up the throne. We're going to overthrow these people. How are we going to do this? Jesus is like, okay, here's the plan, guys. i got a conspiracy. We're going to kill him with love. Okay, okay, let me give you some practice. Peter, come here. Put the sword down. Thomas, stop that doubting thing. Get over here. Judas, bring the money over here. Huddle up, guys. Here's what we're going to do. If they require you to go a mile, yes, go too. This is your strategy? Give to him who asks, and do not turn away him who wants to borrow. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Oh, yeah. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, and you'll be like your father. You'll be like, you'll be, you may be sons of your father in heaven, who causes his son to rise on evil and good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's like, here's our plan. We're going to love the hell out of them. This is your plan? This is it? How are we going to change the world? Gather. Here's my secret conspiracy. We're going to love people who don't deserve it. Well, what's that look like? If he tells you to go a mile, yeah, go two. How about the guy who sues me? Takes your shirt? Yeah, give him your coat. Is there anybody else up there? The three of you talked about this. You, you have to understand, you think we're in a quandary? You think like, do we vote or not vote? Do we rise up? We are open no matter what. Can't tell us about our amendment rights. Or do we submit? I mean, you think the church is in a quandary? You have no idea what it's like for God to say, Messiah's going to come and he's going to take over the world. You're like, I'm in that one on this guy you can all leave but we got seats on the throne Jesus I'll take the one right next to you (laughs) I can feel the stress in here (laughs) I remember this is the part I don't miss In Acts chapter 27, Paul is on a ship. He's a prisoner. It's a POW. No, he's not a prisoner of war. He's a prisoner because they think that he broke Jewish law. And the, Rome, and the Jews want the Romans to imprison him and kill him. So he's with a bunch of prisoners in a ship. And there's a storm. And Paul says, I perceive by the Lord that... We shouldn't set sail. But they didn't listen to Paul, and they set sail, and they get in a storm that's so bad that they're jetsoning, they're jetsoning, they're throwing off the cargo and even the food. And an angel of the Lord comes to Paul and says to him, um, you're right about 
the crash, because Paul said there's going to be loss of ship and loss of life. But an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, uh, you didn't get the prophecy quite right. There's going to be a loss of ship, but there will be no loss of life. And by the way, you think, well, that's not a big deal. It's not unless you're on the ship. And then he makes this statement. And now, so Paul is telling the captain of the ship when they're in peril. He said, for this very night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve came to me and said, saying to me, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has graciously granted to you all who are sailing with you. So God says, Listen, Paul, it's not time for you to die because I have commissioned you to influence Caesar. So tell, listen, and because you're on the ship, I'm gonna, the ship's going to break up, but tell the captain, because you're here, they'll all be saved. We don't know what happened because the, ch- the chapter 28 ends with Paul still waiting. But Paul said to the Jews... And the Romans, I appeal before Caesar, and I don't know at the time if Paul actually understood, or maybe he did, that God actually anointed Paul to have influence on Rome from the inside out. So God said, You have to go to see Caesar. And I love this part, and it's just a little tidbit, but I love this. In Philippians 4:22, he writes to the Philippians, and at the end, he gives them a greeting. And he says this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. (laughs) Just wanted to tell you, I'm over here with Caesar and his family, drinking some wine. Uh, It's (laughs) non-fermented. Just wanted you to know, everyone in Caesar's household greets you. What's the point I'm making? Like Joseph of the Old Testament, God has a plan for governments. He has a plan to change the world. Those who have turned the world upside down have come here. What's Paul doing in Caesar's palace? He is, he is proclaiming, he is testifying about the miracle working power of a, of, a, of a guy who used to kill Christians, has an encounter with God, he ends up on the floor, he has a prophecy, he has an encounter with God that changes him from the inside out, and here he is before Caesar, and by the way, he ends up testifying between, for three kings before he gets to Caesar about how God transformed him. What am I saying? I'm saying we are called to transform culture, but our best card is from the inside out. We must stay supernatural at all costs. We can't get civilized. That's not who we are. I'm not saying that's not who anyone is. I'm saying I'm not sure that's who we are. Oh, maybe you're like, that's who I am. I'm like, not me. Would you stand? A lot of people are concerned about conspiracy theories. God has a conspiracy. He's so powerful, he wrote it in a book. The most popular book in history. He said, this is what I'm going to do, by the way. Stop me. Try and stop me. I want to just tell you we win. That didn't go over very well. Let me just say this. There are more for us than those who are against us. Only one-third angels fell, two-thirds stayed on our side. And we have a God who does the impossible. 
And he said, you're gonna, light's going to break out in darkness, and if you focus on the darkness, you might lose sight of the light. So I want to pray for you all. Pray for you who are watching us on YouTube, Bethel TV, and just say this, that God is releasing supernatural power and supernatural manifestations like Joseph, like Daniel, into the houses and palaces of kings, but also under bridges of people who are living homeless. God wants to release supernatural power into the social issues of our time. How many understand when you hate people, you have joined the devil in his devious plot to kill, steal, and destroy. I don't care why you hate people. I don't like the Republicans. I don't like the Democrats. I don't like the white people, the black people. The How many you know, as soon as you do that, you have, you have entered into the conspiracy theory of hell, and God's got a different one, and it's like, let's love people until they change. So, Lord, I just pray, Tom, come. I just pray right now that you would shift whatever needs to be shifted in us, that we go back to the old gym, that we would go back to the roots of the way we started, and that we would find that place of presence, of power, of purity, and of purpose in Jesus' name. And everybody said, I received that for myself. I hope you enjoyed that message. You know that this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and develop you in the art of thinking like God. I want you to experience what it means to truly think like God and have the mind of Christ. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is to read my book, Spiritual Intelligence, which is available for purchase everywhere you love to buy books. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to share your thoughts with me.